told you guys that I wanted to present to you guys a gospel message every week. And, and the idea behind that is not to come to you every week and, and treat you like you're not a believer, because I think that at least the people that I know in here, I think most of you are believers, and, and I wouldn't question that. But the gospel goes beyond just that moment of conversion. The gospel is and continues to be a major part of your life. Um, the gospel is not just that Jesus saves you, but that he transforms you. He makes you new, and he continues to do that throughout your life. And so as we do this and then take that perspective, the gospel-centered message or the Christ-centered message really brings us to this place where we are going to examine ourselves in light of Scripture and really begin to look at our lives as being something that should be continually a process of repentance and depending on Jesus. And so that's, that's the perspective I come to you from. And, and, and as I said in, in the prayer and I prayed for grace, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be very, I'm going to be very direct. But I'm going to try and be very gracious. I think it's interesting. We closed with that song. And the words in, in that song really speak about this because as we think about God's mercy, we think about it, how it, how it frees us from certain things, how it, 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 it it removes the, the guilt of sin, but there's a weight to it as well. It's more than just, you're free. There's a moment of confrontation. There's a moment that, that we have to recognize that that sin is real. And that's a difficult place to be. And it, 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 it's, it's a conflict within us because that sin that's real within us, that's that, that person who we are without Jesus oftentimes is a pleasurable place to be. Oftentimes are things of this life in this world that we don't want to give up. You see, it rotates around this, this idea that we deserve what we want or, or that we want our own way or, or that, that we think God should fit into the box that we put him into. In, in fact, so often I, I hear people try and, try and talk about who God is, and, and they're not talking from how God has revealed himself. They're talking about a, a position about who God is based on their own perspectives or their own desires of who God should be. And so I, as we begin to do this, I want to put three questions in your mind, four questions in your mind, and then I want to move forward. How do you deal with things when things don't seem to go your way? How do you deal in, in circumstances when they don't seem to be going your way? When you don't get what you want, how do you react? What do you do when you receive from life what's not necessarily what you think you deserve? How do you deal with these little struggles of life? Think about those questions. And let me share some scenarios with you. Yesterday, I was at the funeral of a 41-year young woman. <laughs> I read through this enough that I thought it wouldn't make me emotional. <laughs> Sorry. Beth Manley found out that she had cancer in October of 2008. She was living in Cape Girardeau when she found out. 
It wasn't long before her parents, who lived here, their names are Wanda and Jim, had moved out there to stay with her. <clears throat> she suffered with this cancer until last Wednesday. And there were a couple of things that struck me as I thought back on her struggle against this illness. The first was a tagline that I saw on the bottom of her emails and on her Facebook page, and it said, I may have cancer, but cancer does not have me. And this is, of course, in spite of the fact that in recent months, her body has been ravaged. It had been ravaged by the disease. The second thing that caught my attention was how strong her parents were as they cared for her throughout this struggle. And they were with her had not been home in months until they just recently brought her back into Springfield. But then especially, I, <clears throat> especially saw that in the last two days. As we went to her visitation, the line went out the door of the funeral home, and it was out the door for two and a half hours. And her parents stood by that coffin, and they welcomed people, and they comforted people. I thought, how interesting. I thought, I, I, I can't imagine that they would be able to be this strong tomorrow. They stood up at the end of the services yesterday, and people were broken, and they were crying. And those two... They were rocks. And as people mourned over the death of their daughter, they comforted them. What I had realized, and it really became obvious in this moment, <clears throat> was that the songs that Beth had picked and, and the songs that she had had asked to be sung and the part that she asked that I would play in the service... And then those things that I heard her parents say as they comforted people, that the funeral had not been intended simply to say goodbye to Beth or to mourn her loss, but to praise Jesus and call people to remember him and consider whether they knew him as their Savior or not. All of this, in my mind, can only be attributed to a deep and abiding faith in the Savior. I don't want to present to you that Beth never had fears or questions or experienced moments of doubt. I don't want you to think that Beth's parents never, never mourned or are not going to miss her and didn't struggle with why her. I'm sure that they did. But what I want you to recognize is that in this moment... When so many other people would be falling apart, their daughter is in a casket. They recognize something much bigger. And, and Beth, in her moment where, where she could have been the center, truly the center of attention, said, No, I want Jesus to be praised. I want you to contrast this attitude with a couple of different scenarios. 
I won't be so emotional about them. I wasn't close with these people, and they didn't die. But the first is a panel that was assembled to deal with the the subject of adultery. In this series that focused on the Ten Commandments, you can see it on ABC News. Um, In fact, you can look it up on their website and and watch it and understand and, and hear what I'm talking about. You can hear the whole interview. But there were some things in this interview that I found I found very interesting. I thought it was great the way the people who presented the, the biblical picture of what adultery is. I, I thought they did a great job of defending the, the biblical view of marriage. And But there were some things that were extremely shocking. I shouldn't be shocked, I don't guess, because lost people act like lost people. But there were some quotes made and some things said by the the side of the panel that was supporting adultery being okay in our culture that I was I was stunned by. Noel Bitterman's a president. He's the president of a website that's designed to help married people cheat. I don't remember the name of it, and I wouldn't tell you the name of it because I don't want you to go and look at it anyway. But he defended this position, his position that adultery is not in, in, in his helping people commit adultery. He presented this idea that this is not helping and endorsing moral failure, but it saves marriages. Because if you allow people to do the things that they want to do and are going to do anyway, well, then at least they can go home and be more happy. Jenny Block, she lives in an open marriage in which she has her husband and a child with that husband, but also has a girlfriend. And believes that her relationship is totally acceptable before God. And in fact, at one point was was confronted with this being sin. And and the mediator of of the debate says, well, will you ever ask forgiveness for this? She said, no. I believe it's totally fine before God. I don't have anything to repent of. I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I think that people who lie and cheat... They're the wrong ones. But because my husband knows what's going on, I'm okay. And repeatedly throughout the debate, repeatedly throughout the debate, the idea of commitment within marriage and and the commandment to not commit adultery was brought under fire. Repeatedly. And the idea was, was that maybe that standard is too high since none of us can really attain to that. Because there's so much failure, maybe, just maybe, we need to lower the standard. Maybe God's standards more than we can handle. And then in a conversation I had recently, it was interesting to me that the, the, the way this conversation took off, but, but the meat of the conversation was about, was about tithing. And this person, this, this woman, was trying to justify her reason in not giving to her church. I was struck by that. She wants to be a member. She wants to enjoy all that the church offers. She wants to do everything that she can do to be a part of this church, but she doesn't want to give into the work. She says, well, God knows I'm broke. He knows I don't have money to give. He wouldn't expect me to give. And I was as gentle as I could be. 
but asked her, how does she think that not giving demonstrates her faith in God? How does she think that that not obeying this command that God's given to his people to be generous givers, to, to give generously, how does she deal with Jesus praising this woman, this, this old widow who had almost nothing. He praised her who gave everything he said, but was hard on the Pharisees who were giving so much, but out of their overflow, out of their abundance. You see, both of these pictures, both of those scenarios demonstrate people who are not looking to God, who are not living to fulfill His will or walking in His way and don't want to recognize Him as as God. Who is the God of the people that won't live by His way? Who do they recognize as God? Who do they deal with as as Lord? Themselves. You see, because they're taking what God's standard is and they're separating it and setting it down and building their own. What he says, I don't really agree with that. I really like it this way better. So this is the way I'm going to approach it. Well, what we see here is this conflict that begins to build itself within us. And, and, and this is where it gets difficult. Because it's not just people who have scenarios like this that experience this conflict. I experience this conflict. And every one of you experience this conflict. You see, there is a conflict that comes with the gospel. And 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 there's nothing we can do about it. We can't we can't take it away, we can't remove it, because as soon as we do. As soon as we remove this conflict, as, as soon as we remove this, 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 this place where truth meets a lie, as soon as we remove that, we change the power of the gospel. We make it our own story. We set ourselves up as our own gods. Not all conflict is bad. And, and, you know, these are obviously different stories. They're, they're different sp- perspectives. But this is what they demonstrate for us. This is where they tie together. How people react as an eternal God interacts with his time-bound, fallen, and finite creation <laughs> says a lot. How people react when God interacts with them, says a lot about who they are. A conflict between fallen humans whose heart have, have become idol factories, who, who set up idols just like that, and, and, and then the one true living God? They happen in this room and, and in the people in this room, and they happen out there. And as I began to reread through John chapter 7, I struggled with this because I knew that this was going to have to be where we came to. I knew that this place where I was searching for the gospel, I was reading this over and over and over, and and, and was trying to come back from just some facts and figures I gave you in John chapter 7 a couple weeks ago to bring the gospel out of this and try to understand what it's saying to us. I recognize that what it says 
And what it shows us is this conflict that comes from recognizing the gospel. The gospel brings with it conflict. Well, let's just look. You've already been there with me if you were here a couple of weeks ago, but let's look in John chapter 7. Don't forget the scenarios I shared with you. We'll be back to them. But let's just look at a couple of things that we begin to see happen. We're going to start in verse 16. Before we get there, let me, let me set up the passage so that you guys understand what's going to happen. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. It's the middle of a ceremony called the Feast of Booths. And what the Feast of Booths is all about is that the, the, for about a week, the, the Jews would set up these little leaf-covered shacks or shanties or, or we might call them tents or something like that. But they would set up these little, these little booths and they would live in them for a week in celebration of what God had done as they wandered in the desert and and celebrated God's provision and how he had provided for them. You know, in spite of who they were, they were constantly rebelling. They were constantly going against what he said. But as they did that, God stayed faithful to them. He, He continued to provide. The Bible even tells us that their shoes never wore out, their clothes never tattered, and and they always had food. So we see how God has has worked and stayed faithful, and they're celebrating that moment. It's pretty ironic that as God's provision, these things that really point and are are shadows and and, and uh, for, foreshadowing of Jesus' coming and God's true provision for salvation, it's interesting that as they celebrated this moment when they were delivered, that they didn't recognize the coming Savior. It's interesting that as He came and began to teach and began to speak, there was great conflict. There was great conflict between who they were and what they thought and what they wanted in life and who they thought He was. And so here's where we pick up is at, this, at, at the beginning of this conflict. And we'll, we'll start reading verse 16 and read through verse 17. So Jesus answered them. They have just now confronted him about where he learned to teach and where his authority comes from. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, what, what Jesus is saying ultimately and in, in, in just directly is, is that when people know God and have a desire to do his will, they'll hear, they'll hear truth. But what he's also saying and implying very, very clearly is that people who don't seek God and don't look to do his will won't hear his truth. They won't hear what's going on. And and in this moment, what Jesus is really doing with these Jews is he's challenging their allegiances. Because as as you can see, they're, they're questioning his authority. They're questioning where he learned what he's teaching. They're questioning everything because they've been taught all their lives by these rabbis who, who have these thoughts and who have these ideas about what truth is. And Jesus is challenging that, and he's calling them to a different allegiance. He's calling them to this place where where they set aside everything they've learned because what he's telling them is different than what they've been taught. But what's interesting about this is that they want all the answers right now. Look at it again. In verse 16 he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. They want the answers right now. But he's telling them before you're going to understand and before you're going to get to this place where you can understand truth, you've got to change your faith. We, we, we look at, we look at um, apologetics and we, we try to convince people of Christ every day. I mean, there's, there's people who live their lives for apologetics and they want to convince people of Jesus Christ and they want to defend the faith. And I'm not taken away from that. I'm glad they're out there. But what we see here is that Jesus is going to only be known as, as he becomes known through faith. We're not going to have all the answers, or even after we believe, we're not going to have all the answers, but we're not going to get answers until we take that first step of faith. Jesus confronts their allegiances. And then he confronts their self-righteous and double standards. Look at verse 19. He says this. <clears throat> Has, excuse me, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answers, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and all of you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses can be broke, may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Now, if you'll think back in earlier in the book of John, Jesus healed the guy, the guy that was at the pool of Bethesda. He healed him on the Sabbath, and everybody got upset. This is what he's referring to. First, he brings up this, this law and, and that they're counting themselves righteous by. We keep the law. That's what they're standing on. That's what they're trusting in. That's what they're looking towards. And as they stand before God, that's what they're going to say. They des- we, we deserve, we are righteous because we kept your law. But Jesus points out, but you're seeking to kill me. That's breaking a law. You're self-righteous. And you're not truly righteous. And then he goes on to show them that, hey, you've got a double standard. You get on to me for making somebody well on the Sabbath, but you do something on the Sabbath. You circumcise people so that another law won't be broken. You see, that's, that's the point, is, is that they were trusting in self-righteousness. They were trusting in double standards, and Jesus confronted them in it. Let me ask you a question that kind of goes back to where we were at before. Who had these people set up as their own God? Where did these people really find their hope, their strength, their righteousness, their salvation? In themselves, in what they could do, and how they appeared in their, by their own standards. But then as we go through the book, we begin to see what the heart of the matter really is. We begin to see that it goes much deeper than just these actions on the outside. We begin to see that, that it, it goes much deeper than just simply saying to Jesus, I don't agree with you. It goes much deeper than just, than, than just hanging on to something of this world. You see, they begin to struggle with who Jesus is. They, they don't recognize him. They don't understand he's more than just a prophet or a good man. They don't understand that he has something to offer that's beyond just, just a, a sense of well-being in this life. The heart of the matter is, is that they don't recognize the Messiah. 
because of that, there's great conflict. Luke chapter 7, verse 49 says this, I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I came to cast fire on the earth. Do you know who said that? Jesus. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's speaking about his death and burial. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Those are some pretty tough words. I thought Jesus came to give peace. I thought he was the feel-good Messiah. We, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but, but this becomes the heart of the matter. This becomes that place where, where the rubber really meets the road. And, then, and this is where it all becomes to be ahead in, in, this, in this conflict with Jesus. Because these people are recognizing and looking for some other Messiah. They're looking for some other Jesus. They didn't get the Jesus they wanted. In fact, to state it very plainly, they didn't want Jesus. He didn't measure up to what they expected. He didn't have the right credentials. He didn't have the right identity. He didn't act in the right way. He didn't let them continue in status quo. He called them to a new allegiance. He told them what they believed all along was wrong. He pointed out their fallenness and the fallenness of all that they'd ever known and trusted in. He showed them that what they had hoped in all of their lives was empty and led to nothingness. This was not the Jesus they wanted. They expected a Messiah to come in and talk about what a great job they'd done. Now let's go kick the Romans' butt so that we can have our own kingdom back. Let's, let's stand up and feel good about ourselves and look at where we're at in this life. They wanted a Messiah that measured up to their standards, who would rule in their way. And that's the conflict. That's where the controversy begins. But it all circulates around Jesus. Because when you take a stance on Jesus, it's, it, it's not just simply disagreeing about whether or not the color of the wall should be black or blue or green or maroon or brown. That's not that simple. You see, when we don't agree about Jesus, when we take a stance on Jesus, it's a matter of life and death. And while you can status or, or while you can break us down into numerous different types of people in the world and you can you can look at five different personality types and you can which there there's way more than that but you can look at different different perspectives on things and you can group people into all kinds of different places and break them down any number of ways but there's truly two people two kinds of people in the world those who are believers who've recognized Jesus as Messiah and those who haven't yet, or never will. And for those that haven't yet, and never will, and still a struggle for us that those that have, we face a conflict in this message. 
we face a struggle in this message. Imagine what it was like for these people to overcome an entire life's teaching. Imagine what it was like for them as this truth battled the lie that was in them. Paul writes of this battle and this war that rages against our flesh and the truth, our love for sin and, and, and our love for truth as believers. Because there is a war that rages within each one of us. Not because we measure up to our own self-righteous standards, our self-righteous standards, but because of Jesus. You see, Jesus comes to this point when these people don't recognize Him and they're not understanding Him and they're not trusting Him. He says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in verse 40, I'll skip down for just a second, it says, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. You see, Jesus... And his message brings with it a conflict. But in that conflict, it also brings a solution. And this is what I think is, man, this is amazing to me. And I hope that it's amazing to you. Because Jesus didn't just say, you've missed the point, you don't understand, see you later. He stood up and he gave them a solution. Come to me, he says. I have the answers. I can do the work that changes and transforms. I have the solution to your problem. All that you've ever known has failed you. But now you have an option that will never let you down. He says, come to me. It's at the heart of this conflict. It's this place where we find the lie that we've accepted, that they had accepted, that we can find His truth. So this is where it's going to get direct. This is where I need grace. Because I don't want to load on you a bunch of guilt and I don't want to make you feel bad. But I want you to recognize the conflict in your own soul. I want you to see that your heart still produces idols. That you still need to struggle against worshiping things other than Jesus. Because just as these people did, so do we. Just as the people I shared with you at the beginning did and do, so do we. So I'm going to ask some questions. What or how do you react? 
when things don't go your way? What do you do when circumstances don't work the way you want them to? What happens in your life when you don't get what you want? And what does that say about who you're truly worshiping? What does that say? You know, it's easy to pick out sin in the life of a non-believer because they don't try to hide it. They don't try to justify it. They don't try they don't know not to. What do your actions in moments that are trying say about who you truly worship? When you're sitting at home alone in front of a television or a computer, what does that say about who you worship? When you're at the store spending money to the point that you can't give, what does that say about who you truly worship? When you spend your time doing everything you want to the point that you're not connecting with Christian community and serving the body and following the commands of the Lord, what does that say about who you truly worship? You see, the gospel brings with it a conflict. But it also brings a solution. What did Jesus say to do as we recognize these things? What did He say would fix us? What did He say was the only promise of an eternal and, 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 and important and, and lasting result? He said, come to me. Recognize me and come to me. Come to me. (laughs) I'm going to give you something to drink. And I'm going to give you so much that it is going to produce in you living waters. Flowing out of you, flowing out of your heart, running out of you so much that you can't contain it, that you can't hold it back, you can't dam it off, and you can't make it stop. Come to me. If you looked at your life, do you see fruit that demonstrates? You are flowing with living water. Do you see the fruit of the work of Jesus Christ? If you don't, then you need to be very honest with yourself here. Who's failing? Did his promise fail? Is he not living up to his word? Or are we not coming to him? Every head bowed, every eye closed.
as I said, I'm not trying to bring you guilt. My prayer is, is that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. I know that this is not a dynamic and an amazing lesson. I know that there's a struggle in dealing with conflict. I know that these are not easy words, but these are things that you need to deal with in your life. What do your actions say about who you're truly trusting, about who you're truly following? What do the words that you speak, how do they compare with the actions of your life? Through Jesus, 